Today's podcast is brought to you by the Bioceuticals Integrative Oncology Workshop with Dr. Lee Zalchula. This full-day program will run between the dates of the 20th and 28th of July across Melbourne, Sydney, Gold Coast, Adelaide and Perth. The intensive class will explore key concepts and therapeutic integrative strategies for breast, prostate, colon and lung cancers, as well as how to support toxicities associated with conventional treatment. By the end of the day, you'll be able to confidently implement this important aspect of patient care into your clinical practice. For more information and to register for this critical event, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line all the way from near Chicago in the USA is Stacey Roberts. Now, as I've mentioned in a previous podcast, Stacey is a former physiotherapist turned herbalist and naturopath. She's been involved in the healthcare system since 1989 in both conventional and complementary medicine. She's an internationally recognised natural fertility expert. She's well-published. She appears on TV programs around the world. So, Stacey, welcome back to FX Radio. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me back. Stacey, let's jump right in to the subject. Tell me what the prevalence is of thyroid issues in infertile women. Well, when you're talking about thyroid issues, we really have to break it up into two separate um, diagnoses that uh, are out there. There's the hypothyroidism, uh, which is the slow or kind of sluggish thyroid, the slowing down thyroid gland where it's not creating or it may be creating the amount of hormone that we need, but it's not converting it well, or it's not creating the amount of thyroid hormone that we need. Yeah. And then there's hyperthyroidism, where they're creating too much of the hormone uh, of the thyroid hormone that can create problems. So if you're looking at the prevalence of hypothyroidism in, in women in their reproductive years, it's somewhere between 2 and 4%. When you look at women who are diagnosed with fertility issues, specifically unexplained fertility, those the, the prevalence can vary from... 0.5% depending on what study you're looking at. So all the way up to 25% depending on the subjects that are looked at in different studies. Wow. And now hyperthyroidism is less uh, is less evident in the population in general, um, where it's about 2.3% uh, in the women in the reproductive years. Um, sorry, it's about 1%. Can I start over with the hypothyroid, hyperthyroidism? The... Uh, the prevalence of hyperthyroidism in women in their reproductive years in the general population is about 1%, whereas with the uh, women in their uh, dealing with fertility issues, it's about 2.3%. So you've got an increased incident of both issues when it comes to thyroid. So it is definitely a big issue. And then you have the issue where we look at subclinical hypothyroid or thyroid that may be within the normal range. Um, but not really producing an optimal level for mm-hmm. that person's particular fertility. And there's really no stats on that. So, you know, those stats can certainly be a lot higher. With with the issue with uh, hypothyroidism, that's a, a really wide variance, isn't it? A- any reasons for that? Absolutely. I think it depends on the study and what diagnoses they're looking at. So mm. they may have lumped, you know, polycystic ovaries into that or anyone who's been diagnosed with any type of fertility issue or some of the studies may be just looking at unexplained, you know, fertility issues. Um, so I think 
depends on the study and what they're particularly yeah. looking at. And unfortunately, they're not always very clear. So what are the, some of the symptoms that practitioners should be looking for to maybe you know, flag underactive thyroid? Well, the most common things that people will see, and, and as patients are Googling on the internet, where they'll say, hey, I think I have this issue, is that their t- fatigue is a big issue with um, hypothyroidism. Uh, very tired, and some women, they'll have unexplained weight gain or very difficult, lots of difficulty losing weight, uh, even if they're eating well or exercising. Um, Other things potentially will be uh, looking at their thyroid, feeling their thyroid in their neck and actually swollen, uh, looking a bit wider. This can be, that can be both hyper and hypo, but oftentimes you'll see almost a goiter forming in hypothyroid women. Um, Some creases along the neck, some very deep creases along the neck can be also something that you would see. But generally how women feel is just very sluggish and very tired uh, and just generally don't feel like they've got much gas or petrol in their petrol tank. What what about the the other classical symptoms like, you know, losing the outer third of the eyebrow and things like that? How prevalent do you find those? How How helpful? In uh, fertility, I only see those in someone who's been dealing with uh, hypothyroidism for a long time. That's not something that I see very often, but it it does happen. Mm. Um, The other things that we see related to the menstrual cycle are they may be missing their periods, long cycles, um, bleeding excessively, bleeding uh, heavily with lots of clotting. Uh, all these different things can make us go, okay, maybe there's a thyroid issue here that we need to look at. And just... Stepping in with a fertility diagnosis should automatically make you, as a practitioner, want to assess the thyroid for optimal function. Can I, can I just go into one of the symptoms that you mentioned there about um, excessive periods with lots of clotting? Um, I thought that was more of an inflammatory type process. So you're saying it's linked to thyroid disease as well or linked to thyroid disease instead of? It's something that I see commonly with women with thyroid issues, mm. any type of change in their menstrual flow. Now, yeah. again, with anything that we're talking about, injury, a lot of these things are overlapping. So yeah. a woman with endometriosis might come in with, with clotting issues. A woman with who is insulin resistant, that's you know, dealing with polycystic ovaries, and like you're saying, has an inflammatory reaction uh, in, in their system, mm. may also present with that. But I've also seen that as one of the indicators for women who are dealing with um, hypothyroid, but you know everyone's very individual. Yeah, we have to remember not to slot even symptoms in specific, you know, disease or imbalance mm. categories. No, that's great. Thank you for clarifying that. It just piqued my interest there. Um, what about the mm-hmm. symptoms of overactive thyroid, Graves' disease, for instance? The overactive thyroid will again accompany. Uh, what will accompany overactive thyroid is again fatigue. Many people just feel really tired, but the difference oftentimes between that and hypothyroid is oftentimes people feel as though they, it's like their foot's on the uh, the petrol uh, pedal, you yeah. know, to go, but they just don't have the energy to. They just are just feeling really fatigued. Yeah. But they feel like they're utilizing a lot of energy. Um, also, uh, diarrhea. Um, uh, rapid or sudden weight loss, uh, feeling nauseous, unwell. Uh, the particular Graves' disease, oftentimes we'll see the bulging of the eyes. Um, those types of things are, are prevalent. Long-term Graves' disease will have the um, you know, swelling in the area of the tibia and discoloration in the area of the tibia um, uh, and their legs. So, sorry, can I just cut in there? Um, something that I've never heard of here, discoloration of the tibia and swelling. Can you explain that further, please, Stacey? 
sure it's a it's a sign or symptom of someone who's had longer term Graves disease. It's called pretibial myxedema, and you'll notice that on the front of the the lower leg, there'll be some discoloration or a non-pitting edema that they'll find in, in the front of the leg. Again, not something that from a fertility standpoint I typically mm. would see uh, because the, these are usually, uh, someone who's coming to me with Graves disease that's been trying to get pregnant is usually well, uh, they've been diagnosed and well monitored and taken care of. Um, but these are some things that a practitioner might see in someone with long-standing Graves disease. Wow. Okay. And so other signs and symptoms? Um, I think we went over the diarrhea, the bulging of the eyes, and also the goiter, as we talked about. Um, It could be either hypo or hypothyroidism Mm. for that. And what about causes uh, for both underactive and um, overactive thyroid? There's so many different potential causes. One of the ones that we hear about often and that's, that's treated often is either lack of iodine, so iodine deficiency, or excessive iodine. So um, either one can be an issue. So for hypothyroidism, typically, if there's iodine deficiency, then you're not going to be making the T4 hormone, which is the primary hormone in the thyroid gland that is then broken down to T3 and T2 and T1 and T0. Um, but so iodine deficiency can be an issue. Uh, the other issue is excessive iodine, which can cause, throw somebody into hyperthyroid. Uh, that's a lot less prevalent in our society. Mm. Um, we tend, in Australia especially, women and children tend to be uh, iodine deficient, according to a 2006 study. So that's much more less prevalent yeah. um, in Australian there's there's a, a massive call um, here, and indeed the National Health and Medical Research Council has set out a, a guideline, a public health guideline since January 2010, that all pregnant women should re- be receiving a supplement as well as us having the fortified food because in pregnancy those demands exceed the amount that's available in from food. Um, and it, it, that's it, correct, and there's been studies... There's also studies out there showing that in breast milk of pregnant, you know, as after the uh, women have had the baby, breast milk levels of iodine are too low to really support the infant's uh, thyroid function as well. Too. Yeah. So it, you know, it has a knock-on effect after yeah. after birth as well too. What about the issue of potential iodine excess? Because it's a real concern. There was a scare here with a certain soy milk that really did have an issue. Is there a real issue of women receiving too much iodine? You know, Andrew, the only times that I've seen that in the clinic over in over a decade of working with women with fertility issues has been when um, some of the Asian population who naturally have iodine, higher iodine levels in the foods that they're eating, you know, they're eating a lot of seaweed or if somebody eats a lot of sushi, then potentially they've felt very unwell on uh, additional iodine supplementation that has been, let's say, a multivitamin. I would narrow it down that that was the only thing different from another multivitamin that they had been taking that didn't have the iodine in it. Right. Um, or if they uh, were you know, taking iodine supplementation, unbeknownst to myself, um, and then increased, let's say, the amount of seaweed that they had in their diet. Uh, one woman was actually chewing on seaweed and, and felt really nauseous and, and her T4 levels just shot through the roof. So mm. the prevalence of it, I don't see it very often in the clinic, to be honest, and, but I think we have to look at different cultures and how their ways of eating, and we have to assess each person's food diary to see what levels of iodine they're potentially getting from, from different foods in their diet. And it can be, like I said, in the fortified foods, you have iodine eggs. There's all sorts of different sources, but the, the biggest one that I've seen is the, the source of seaweed. Yeah. 
Uh, so do you have cause for prescribing a, let's say, a multivitamin without iodine? Because you know, like, it seems like the market catches on to flavours of the month and then everything's included. And it doesn't take right. into account, though, where you might be getting that supplement from, from an external source as well. Right. The only time that I, again, would look at that is if somebody is having uh, excessive iodine in, or what I would say would be more... Uh, more than the average person amount of iodine in their diet, but I would instead of you know trying to find a supplement as you said nowadays because after that study came out in regards to the deficiency in women, it's hard to find a prenatal without iodine in it, in at least in the good ones that I see out there. Mm-hmm. So I would you know ask them to be adjusting their eating plan as well um, versus you know getting away from. Um, just you know, looking for a supplement that doesn't have any iodine in it because it's certainly uh, beneficial for sure. And yeah. their their needs once they become pregnant are really important as well to be on the additional iodine. The no adverse effect limit is set at, uh, n- sorry, no observable adverse effect limit, no AL, is set at 1,100 micrograms. Do you find that a reasonable set point to have to be as a maximum for iodine intake, or do you find no issue with even far higher intakes? In my, um, the way that I utilize my formulations in regards to the herbs and then supplementation, mm. I've never found it necessary to go to that high of a supplementation for iodine. Um, potentially around, I mean, a good multivitamin would probably have around 300 micrograms of the potassium iodine in it. Um, I look at on top of that, only if they're iodine deficient based on a 24-hour urinary iodine test or potentially very low T4 levels in combination with herbs like Lithania um, and Bacopa, which have been shown to support T4 levels uh, in, uh, have been shown to be related to an increase in T4 levels uh, once taken. I'll do that in combination with additional iodine and then, of course, uh, work with the doctor on, on testing T4 levels and make sure that they're stabilizing where we want them to be optimal for pregnancy. Hmm. So I've really never gone above that 1,100 microgram um, limit. Uh, I know that there's people out there that do, but that's just not something that, that I've had to do no, to for, optimize thyroid function. For the listeners, I would probably direct you to a, an interesting um, an argument um, between Dr. Alan Gabby and Dr. Guy Abrahams, and it's this... Um, tete-a-tete that they're having about the dose, the appropriate dose. So Mm -hmm. moving on, you know, it's interesting that some recent papers that have come out, one in particular by Drutal, uh, mentioning selenium, and it's sort of, dare I say the word, the sentence, it it appears to make iodine safer, Um, quote-unquote. The Drutal paper is using it in uh, orbitopathy with hyperthyroid. What's your take on selenium and, and how appropriate to find it? What doses do you use? Selenium is absolutely essential when dealing with you know, overall health and specifically thyroid and immune function. Selenium allows the T4 levels that we're creating to, or one of the nutrients, I should say, that encourages the, the conversion of T4 to T3 and T3 being the more active of the of the two hormones going around and, and really influencing every cell in the body and helping to make progesterone 
um, helping to stimulate the, um, the body to make progesterone and also uh, testosterone as well. So again, really, really important mineral that also acts as an antioxidant. And I think that's one of the reasons why, like you said, the quote was, it makes iodine safer. Well, if you're increasing your T4 levels by increasing iodine, you don't want the T4 to just be building up and then not converting into active T3. So it's possible that selenium supplementation is encouraging the balance of that conversion to help support optimal hormone balance down the chain. And what dosage do you use there, Stacey? I tend to go up to, in Australia, 150 micrograms of selenium uh, as the limit that's allowable in Australia. There are other countries where they go up to 200 micrograms where studies have supported that um, allowance in the multivitamins that that they're selling in those other countries. So I would say somewhere between 150 to 200 micrograms yep. is a safe dose because, as we know, selenium can be toxic at mm. high doses taken from, taken from long periods of time. Um, so we want to be cognizant of that, but we also want to be able to you know, give our uh, patients what they need in regards to that support for T4 and T3 because someone can pre- be presenting with hypothyroidism with a normal TSH level, a normal T4 level, but if they're presenting with the symptoms or some of the issues with fertility or some of the symptoms that we talked about previously, that conversion of T4 to T3 may not be happening simply because they don't have those nutrients in their system to convert that T4 to T3 and then have the knockdown effect of optimizing the reproductive hormone levels too. Right. And do you find any difference in the different types of selenium that are available on the market? For instance, selenomethionine versus sodium selenite? Um, I personally have seen better effects from supplementation that have had the selenomethionine in it. Uh, I don't know if that's because of the quality of the supplements that I tend to use usually have that form mm. of selenium in. I can't speak to that specifically, but I do know that the supplements that I recommend utilize that that um, type of selenium and, and I see some great results with it. Yeah. And, you know, living in our 21st century toxic world, what if, what part do you find, you know, toxins, chemicals and, and indeed pre-existing medications might play in the um, the reason for having an overactive or underactive thyroid? Well, any type of inflammation, either caused by, you know, poor eating plan, um, you know, chemical exposure, toxic exposure is going to have an impact on the thyroid gland for sure. That's, you know, clear in the research. So the, you know, when we're exposed to herbicides, pesticides, things like that in the foods that we're eating, um, if we're, you know, exposed to heavy metals on our, you know, jobs that we're doing, uh, you know, anything like that, or, you know, mercury, mercury fillings that, that mm. used to be popular in dentistry, all those types of things can certainly impact the thyroid in a huge way. And then also decrease the ability of that T4 to convert into T3. And we know that the, these chemical and toxins, and even inflammation from things like you know, you know, uh, being sensitive or intolerant to gluten, can create inflammation that also is impacting our immune system, which then can lead us to an autoimmune disease of, of such something like Hashimoto's disease. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's really important for for practitioners to know in regards to fertility is many times uh, we've you know read in school that you know, and doctors are taught that thyroid antibodies be elevated or won't be an issue, or Hashimoto's disease won't be an issue if the TSH levels are normal. And that just simply is not true. There's studies showing that normal TSH, normal T4 levels 
in women can also be associated with elevated thyroid antibody levels yeah. and the beginnings of Hashimoto's disease. So that's something that, again, chemicals, um, you know, what we're putting in our body, what our body's surrounded by, is certainly impacting our, uh, our autoimmune system as well as our thyroid for sure. And, and that plays into just what an effective pump uh, the thyroid is, isn't it? The Hashimoto's can actually present as euthyroid because the, th- the thyroid is such an efficient manufacturer of thyroid hormone that you don't really see a drop-off until a lot of damage has occurred. Is that correct? Right, exactly. And, and many times patients will come to me and say, oh, you know, my uh, physician said that my thyroid antibodies were elevated, but not to worry because there's nothing you can do about it. Um, until the thyroid fails, and then we'll put you on medication. <laughs> and that never sits well with anyone, really. I mean, and I, if I've heard that Strangely. once, I've heard it a hundred times. <laughs> exactly. So um, why don't we want to, before it fails, to try to uh, adjust that? And I think that the belief is, uh, you know, conventionally that you can't do anything. There's nothing that you can do. It just happens, it's, you know, the luck of the draw, yada, yada. But there's certainly many things that can be done. Something as simple as removing gluten from the diet has significantly decreased um, patients' thyroid antibodies and and created, you know, uh, a lessening of symptoms and improvement in fertility and decrease in miscarriage. Again, that's all been documented. Even utilizing thyroxin has been documented to decrease um, uh, miscarriage rate in women who've had elevated thyroid antibodies by 50%. So it's just, there's a huge amount of research that just isn't being talked about or uh, discussed. That needs to get out there. To me, to me, that's such an interesting mindset for that practitioner to say that. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, okay, so you've just been diagnosed as with diabetes, so let's get you set up for a, a leg prosthesis now because you're going to lose your feet sooner or later anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think it's a matter of, you know, if it's not what they would consider a disease state, which is, you know, defined in and, you know, the, the books that they use to define that, then they're not going to treat it. You know, your glucose level, fasting glucose or uh, HB1AC may be you know, right, at the, uh, right at the high end of normal, but they're not going to treat that until it becomes diabetes. So let's just wait until you get diabetes before we do something about it, yeah. which, again, is, is not a holistic. No. <laughs> not looking at a preventative point of view at all. But- so. But that, unfortunately, is the attitude out there among some physicians. Thankfully, not all. There's some very good proactive physicians that uh, want to uh, prevent those issues from happening as well, too. So and that's where I was... That's where I was going to go with my next question is obviously you found these practitioners, um, but how hard is it and and what's different about these people? Like, are they the questioners? Like, why is this happening or how did you meet them? I think it just... It's people who, when you present them with the evidence, I mean, I, I believe, and I, you know, I didn't go through medical school, so I can't speak to this, but I can just say that what physicians have said to me is that, you know, they're taught basically that if TSH is normal, if, then the likelihood of thyroid antibodies being elevated is pretty close to zero. So I remember a talk that I had with one physician when I was asking for thyroid antibodies to be tested, even though TSH was normal, and he was very argumentative to me about that and explained to me why that's not possible. So the patient paid out of pocket to have it done themselves through a pathology lab and came back elevated. And I just presented that to him with the information that uh, about the uh, miscarriage rates and things like that with people who have thyroid but elevated thyroid antibodies. And you know, I certainly didn't get a thank you note from him, but I certainly did get patients who were referred to me, 
you know, down the road yeah. from him. So sometimes it's just presenting the information that they haven't seen before. And other times it is that they're questioning people, you know, that they say, you know, this just doesn't make sense. You know, uh, why would we wait if, if there's a, a disease process starting? Why do why don't we want to stop that from progressing? Mm. So I think it just depends on the individual person. I want to talking about individual people living in the 21st century again. How big a factor do you find that dealing with our chronic stressful lifestyles is in this whole picture of thyroid issues? Uh, it's huge. I mean, when you look at um, you know physiological stress on the system, which is caused by something physiological going on, maybe it's something that we're eating that that's disagreeing with us, for example, gluten or dairy or sugar, you know, that's creating this inflammation in our system or physical stress from outside the body that's creating emotional stress and then that's causing physiological stress by the way that we're perceiving that stress and how we're dealing with it. All that affects our cortisol levels and bring in the stress that's on the immune system and the autoimmune system causing autoimmune diseases as well, which are running rampant just for general health, not just uh, uh, underlying infertility. Sure. And, you know, when we're talking about stress, we always really should be talking about stressors, but then it becomes overwhelming. So how do you tease those apart, the the physical stressors, um, the physiological stressors, and the emotional stressors? Sure. It's all in really talking to the patient, getting to know the patient, getting to know what's happening in the patient's lives. So it's not just about what their symptoms are. It's about getting to know the person behind the piece of paper, yeah. the person behind the diagnosis, what's relationship like? What was their upbringing? What are they doing right now? Are they studying? Are they, you know, it often seems that people come in and they're, they're studying full time, they're working full time and they're renovating two homes at the same time or, yeah. you know, that they um, have so much trust in their system or they just went through divorce, they're remarried and they have three kids that's from the other, you know, it's just so many things in their lives that we have to take into consideration and then we can all just say to them, oh, you know, you're stressed, you just need to, you know, de-stress. But they look at you like, you know, are you kidding me? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I can't, you know, stop doing these things or that thing. So you really have to work with the person as they're presenting themselves and really create a partnership between you and that person sitting across the table from yeah. you. Really learn about them and listen to them, what they're dealing with, and then help them create something that will work for their particular situation. So I could say to, you know, somebody who's renovating a house, well, you know, stop renovating. You know, you're exposed to all these chemicals, you're doing all this stuff. You know, what's more important, having a baby or renovating this house? Well, how is that fair to them? Um, so we want to work with them and say, okay, well, you know, are you exposed to these different things? How can you minimize your exposure? What can you do? You know, what can you do to decrease your stress in other areas of your life? What, You know, and just create the plan that's individual to their situation. So we tease out the normal stressors that we know um, are common, but then we have to look at that individual person and see what their situation is presenting with and how we can support them in this partnership that we're creating, support them through that process. Yeah. And you've been doing this for a number of years now, obviously, but have you found a dramatic increase in the amount of emotional load that people are carrying? Absolutely. I, I used to coach um, um, high school age girls and I did that for about 20 years. Yeah. And the biggest change that I saw in them is, is the amount of stress that they had to deal with over time. And that just goes and equates with the amount of stress that the parents are dealing with, the stress that I are experiencing, 
just with all of the technology that's available to us, the you know stressors that we're dealing with from trying to manage our emails to our text messages to our, you know all, everything that we're trying to manage, we've just created so many more tigers chasing after us. Yeah, um, and also small stressors that are building up over a period of time. So absolutely, without a doubt, you know people are dealing with more stress and different types of stress than they were, let's say. 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Um, certainly they had stress back then, and certainly, um, but we're just much more bombarded these days. And just having fertility issues in itself is stressful. So that's just another thing that's plopped on top of the whole heap of stress that people are dealing with. And I've got to say, women are so hard on themselves and each other. Mm. It's, it's And some of that is really coming from the, you know, the conditioning that we have out there of, you know, why didn't you try earlier? You know, women who are over 35 think their eggs are running out, you know, yeah. you know tomorrow um, because that's what they hear in the media and read. But, you know, when you look at the actual statistics out there, you know, women between 35 and 39 are having the most babies in Australia and more in the westernized countries. Oh, wow. So women are getting, oh, yeah, absolutely. And women are getting beat up. You know, they're basically, you know, feeling guilty for not having fallen in love with somebody earlier, you know, and mm. wanting to have babies earlier, you know, they may have met somebody at 38 and they're like, Oh gosh, you know, this is too late. And, and that's just not true. So are themselves, but it's oftentimes a society or um, a conditioning thing that we kind of beat up ourselves and we take all this responsibility on ourselves that we're, we somehow are, are at fault mm. uh, for the fertility issues. And, and, that's really not the point. The real point is is not pointing out who's at you know blaming someone. It's about saying, look, it's time to take responsibility for your overall health. Dealing with fertility issues is a sign of the, an imbalance in the system. There may be a, a diagnosis such as polycystic ovaries, which is easy to hang your hat on. You know, uh, there you know what to do in regards to that. But a lot of times it's unexplained fertility issues, mm-hmm. or they're saying it's age related. Well, we want to take responsibility for our own overall health so that we can optimize our hormone balance or any other underlying imbalances that are being, that are created or that we've created over time. Again, it's not about blaming. It's just about stepping back and taking responsibility. I know this information now, so I'm going to do better. I'm going to improve my diet. I'm going to decrease my exposure to you know, toxins. I'm going to really pay attention to what I'm putting in and on my body and just start taking responsibility for those types of things and looking at overall health, which you know, prepares us for having children and then having healthy families as well. Yeah, beautifully said. And I'd like to point out to the listeners, something that you said earlier really, really piqued my interest. You said, we have created so many tigers that chase us now with technology and the demands that we place on ourselves and, you know, all of the financial stresses of keeping up with the Joneses. And it, well said, so well said. So... Stacy, let's you. move on to what you do now for these people that are chronically stressed, chronically worn out. It's not as easy as just saying, look, don't be so, don't beat yourself up. <laughs> what therapies do you actually employ to help these people cope with the stressors of modern day living? Well, the first thing that I do and, and that I always strive to do with my patients is to help them understand what the stress is doing and to help them understand that they may be stressed even though they don't feel stressed. Mm. For example, some people come in and say, you know, I'm doing this, this, and this. I have this problem, this problem, but I don't feel stressed, so I don't understand how you can say my adrenals have any issues or my hormones are out because of that. 
then I talk to them about, you know, we've, we have all these, you know, tigers that are chasing us that we've created. And that for some people really increases their stress threshold, meaning they can tolerate a lot of stress emotionally because they've trained themselves to do so. Mm. But physiologically, there's signs that, that, that things are out of balance, or whether it's a hormone imbalance or a skin condition or fertility right. issues or whatever it presents itself with. So then I'll sit down and I'll diagram out, you know, these are your adrenals, these are your thyroid, your adrenals are like your petrol tank, your thyroid is like your engine, and I'll show them the relationship between the two and how the thyroid hormone impacts reproductive hormones, and then the adrenals can kind of steal away your progesterone, which is obviously one of the reproductive hormones. If there's elevated levels of cortisol, progesterone is utilized to make more cortisol. So I'll explain the process to them, which I think is lacking in quick doctor's appointments. So when you can sit down and show them on a piece of paper exactly what's going on, the light bulb starts to go on. Yeah. And then you can you show them based on their blood tests and based on, you know, what we've seen in the clinic with our patients over the years and how they compare to them. I think people then become empowered again because they before didn't think they could do anything about this stuff because they said, oh, you know, this is just what it is. It is what it is and there's really nothing you can do about it. And they become very disempowered when they receive this information. So, you know, before I even start with herbs or give any type of modalities for them to do or to practice, I want to educate them and help them learn about what their body does so that they then take ownership and say, look, okay, then I can do these. So these things will help influence that. And that's where we work together to create the plan. So from stress management point of view, you know, exercise is great for stress management. So we work on what's realistic in regards to an exercise program for them, or I might refer them out to a personal trainer or a physiotherapist to help mm-hmm. support them depending on their situation. Yep. Then we look at things like yoga and meditation and talk about, you know, starting off with visualization. If you can't get your monkey mind to settle down and, and uh, relax and quiet, which is totally, uh, um, which is very common for people out there. They have difficulty settling their mind. Yeah. We start with just visualization, relaxation exercises, you know, looking at ways that they can do this for five minutes a day or 30 minutes a day, whatever works with their schedule. So we find what really helps them based on their lifestyle. Uh, and it's, it's, again, is an individual script for each person. Hmm. And going along with that, you've you've mentioned time and time again, the tests. Can we talk a little bit about the tests that you recommend have done? Sure, Absolutely. So we're looking at thyroid function. The tests that are you know, covered via Medicare is, is TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. Usually there's no problem getting the um, thyroid stimulating hormone done. But we'd also want to look at, even if thyroid stimulating hormone is normal, we want to look at their free T4 levels and free T3 levels. Uh, that's, again, the T4s, you know, the four iodine bonds that represent the thyroid hormone. T3 is the more active of the, of the two, and we want to see how the T4 is converting into T3. And at Sharkey's over the years, what I've done is I've looked at patients who have become pregnant and then looked at what their baseline levels were prior to becoming pregnant, as close to the pregnancy as we've had them. And then on average, we take 100 pregnancies a year and average them out and find what is the optimal level, because they're usually always within normal normal range, Mm -hmm. but our optimal ranges are a little bit tighter. So we then shoot for that particular range. But when looking at T3, that can be... You can look at that as given optimal range, but if most of the T3 that's being made is reverse T3 or inactive T3, then that's going to tell us that there, again, is some stressors on the system that is not allowing the T4 to convert to active T3. So in that case, we would look at reverse T3 being tested as well. And then, of course, the thyroid antibodies, we look at the um, 
antithyroid anti, uh, peroxidase and the thyroglobulin antithyroid uh, thyroglobulin um, antibodies be tested to look at the uh, issues with uh, whether there's a Hashimoto's type situation or autoimmune issues starting. Yeah. So those are the main ones that I would do for thyroid. And then when I look at adrenals, I usually look at your DHEA levels in the blood. Um, but more accurately, I like to look at the cortisol levels in the saliva because it gives us the rhythm of cortisol throughout the day. So uh, four tests in the morning, mid-morning, afternoon, and evening to look at how cortisol is is traveling throughout the day and if it's in the, the best rhythm that it can be. And then the DHEA levels, which also is indicative of adrenal function as well. Yep. So those are the main ones and maybe a few others that I throw in there as well. With, with the salivary cortisol, do you find... Uh, you know, we've got a, a diurnal variation on one day, but do you find, say, cyclical changes throughout a cycle? If you did, if you did a daily cortisol at the beginning of the cycle versus the middle of the cycle, the end. That's a great question. I've been looking at that over the years. What I do, along with looking at cortisol levels during the cycle, I would most likely test that in a woman who has a very difficult cycle. So right. she's very fatigued during that time. She has a significant. Uh, premenstrual, I might, if she's really fatigued premenstrually, I might do it then. If she has some significant adrenal or thyroid symptoms that are happening around her cycle, I absolutely would uh, test that during that time. Um, typically, I ask that the thyroid be tested during uh, the cycle if possible, during menstruation if possible, because that's just generally more stress on the system. So I don't necessarily always want to do cortisol during that time because that may kind of influence what the cortisol levels might be depending on how much stress their menstrual cycle might be uh, putting on the system. So it doesn't give us, in my opinion, a great baseline. So I might look at that outside, or usually I should say look at that outside of menstruation. Mm-hmm. But occasionally, depending on, again, what the patient presents to me in regards to their their period, I might do that also during um during menstruation, but I typically try to do the thyroid hormones during menstruation to see how their body is handling that extra stress on the system, even if they're um, asymptomatic. Yeah. What about men, Stacey? Like, how how important is it for men to have their adrenals and thyroid um, a monitored or at least questioned? Absolutely essential. I mean, especially if they if they're coming to me for fertility issues and there's issues with the sperm count in particular right. because we know that thyroid influences um, sperm production and if there's a, a low level of uh, low level of sperm or low sperm count there we want to assess whether the thyroid is influencing that because thyroid influences stimulates testosterone production T3 uh, stimulates testosterone production so if the low, if there's low levels of free T uh, free testosterone Potentially, that could be related to thyroid issues, could also be related to other things as well. But it is huge. And when we see elevated cortisol levels in men from, again, increased stress, whether that's physiological stress or emotional stress that's creating physiological stress, uh, that has also been uh, correlated with lower testosterone levels, which, again, in some men can correlate with a lower sperm count. And then we look at the quality of the sperm, the sperm motility or the sperm morphology, the abnormal versus normal form of sperm. If there's increased stress in the system, which might be causing some gut issues, mm. uh, where they've got leaky gut or poor absorption of nutrients into the system, they're not going to be getting the nutrients into the, the cells that they need to optimize sperm quality as well, too, not just quantity. So both of those aspects are important. So we look at... Um, you know, how men are handling 
their stressors and they tend to not be as, um, I don't want to say open to, but tend not to be as uh, aware of um, their stressors. You know, 70% of the couples in there will say, um, you know, he handles stress better than I do or, you know, she gets more stressed out than, than I do. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, very stereotypical, but it's, um, it, it's what I've seen over the years. But he, again, may be handling his stress from an emotional point of view mm. in one way uh, and thinking he's not stressed. But then when we look at his testosterone levels or his thyroid levels or his cortisol or DHA, there's evidence of uh, stressors. On and again, that may not be emotional stress, but it might be some physiological stress caused by what's eating, what they're drinking in regards to alcohol consumption, what they're exposed to at work, maybe creating physiological stress that could be uh, causing elevated levels of cortisol over a long period of time which then could create issues with their fertility. I'll tell you one story about a guy, physiological and environmental point of view, how he was impacted by chemicals that he was exposed to at work. Uh, the couple came to me, and they had a two-year-old boy, and uh, they were having trouble becoming pregnant again, so they were diagnosed with secondary infertility. So she came to see me, and he came along, and I asked, have you had a semen analysis? And they said, oh, well, no, because we have one child already. The doctor said it couldn't be with me. So I said, well, let's just be sure that everything's going the way that it should and, and sent them away for a semen analysis. I didn't see them then for about six months and they came back to me. Well, what happened was he came back with no sperm, zero sperm in the ejaculate. Wow. And he thought she cheated on him um, and to have <sighs> their first child. So he had a, because the doctor said, well, you must have yeah. not ever had, you know, it's not ever have been created sperm mm. at all. So they had, they went through the paternity test and they you know confirmed that it you know it was his child and everything. Well, as we look back in his history when they came, when they came back to me to try to figure out what the heck happened, about a year or two years, maybe about eighteen months, I think it was, before his first child was born, he took a new job in, in the landscaping mm. business where he was exposed to chemicals. Yeah. Now it's two or three or four years later of him of that exposure on an everyday basis that basically. Uh, shut down his sperm production. And once he was able to move himself away from that, and we did some good, um, you know, cleanses and stuff like that, it took us about um, 12 to 14 months, I think it was. Yeah. Um, the sperm production came back again, uh, and they were able to create another child. But it's so essential to look at the guy's point of view, even if it's yeah. a secondary fertility issue. We always want to assess the, the um, gentleman's side of things because. The sperm doesn't just fertilize the egg. It also helps to develop that embryo into a viable pregnancy. Mm. So we want to make sure that all the parameters are as optimal as they can be. Stacey, thank you for that example. I think that's a poignant example of just how important it is for patients to communicate clearly and openly with their practitioner. I want to move quickly over to just a few things that you might employ. I know this is a big topic, but what are the common things that you might employ when treating infertility in both males and females? Sure. Well, we've discussed, you know, the nutritional components. We've discussed selenium and iodine. Mm. But zinc and chromium are also really, really important in regards to that conversion from T4 to T3 as well. And um, from a male fertility aspect, we all, all already know that zinc is very important for sperm production. Uh, so the other things that I would utilize in a herbal formula, just again in general, because there's so many different things that, that you can utilize. I, I tend to utilize uh, withania and bacopa due to the studies that show that that can promote uh, T4 levels if I see that the T4 levels are low. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and might, if it's adrenally related, I'll look at the adaptogens, which again, Lithania is an adaptogen as well as Romania and uh, rhodiola. Uh, those can be really beneficial when you're looking at kind of a combination of the thyroid and adrenals working together. Yep. So that's kind of in general where I would be focused on, them, you know, looking at the whole person, bringing in other um, herbs that might be necessary as well. Blood back as well, too, if I'm looking at potentially um, supporting iodine yep. um, as well. Blue flag, do you ever use that? Blue flag, I, I don't use that as much, but yeah, I will use that in some cases. Yeah. Um, and also the bladder act too, I should mention that that's also a great detoxifier. Um, it can be really beneficial for heavy metal detoxifying as well too. So that's another um, reason that I would use that depending on their occupation or exposure. Yeah. And indeed, how prevalent, how often do you employ you know, comprehensive detox to get rid of chemicals and toxins and things like that? I tend to go in phases because I'm always really cognizant of what kind of money that the patients are wanting them to, and I want to be as cost-effective for them as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with simple things like their eating plan first, which isn't really going to cost them uh, significantly more unless they completely change to an organic eating plan than they weren't before. So we'll start with the basics in regards to their eating plan. Then if I know that they've grown up on a farm and have had exposures or they're working in a, a factory where they're maybe um, having metal exposures, we'll talk about that detoxification process more in detail for them, maybe to get some testing done for heavy metals and things closer to the beginning. But all the while, I'm thinking liver detoxification and supporting that detoxification process all the while anyway, just for promoting optimal health. So I might get much more specific and put them on a more of a cleanse than a detox, I call it, something yeah. a little bit more gentle because you don't want to create more stress in the system when someone's trying to become pregnant. So I do a gentle cleanse that I would take them through if, if necessary, if that's um, what they're presenting with and they need more of a uh, phase one and two liver detox program. Mm-hmm. Stacy, there's one other nutrient I do want to just ask you about quickly, and that's coenzyme Q10. I remember um, Ruth mm. Tricky speaking about coenzyme Q10 mm-hmm. on the basis of one pilot trial. She employed it quite successfully in infertile couples. Mm-hmm. How important is it? And mm-hmm. tell us where the evidence is now. It's extremely important. It's uh, you know something that... The right now, you know, you hear depending on the dosage, you'll hear 300 milligrams might be, you know, best. But what it does is, is promote optimal mitochondrion, you know, energy production basically yep. in the cell to give the cell a bit more energy. And one of the things that they say in regards to age-related fertility is that, you know, the older a woman is, the the less energy that egg has um, to be able to produce a, a healthy embryo. So they're looking at coenzyme Q10 in different studies to try to boost the energy. There's also another um, supplement called PQQ, so that's Peter and then quarter, quarter, uh, that when taken together with coenzyme Q10 actually increases, has been shown to increase the number of mitochondrion in cells. So I tend to, with, with women who um, are more mature trying to become pregnant, I will combine the coenzyme Q10 with the PQQ to be able to promote not just a more efficient mitochondrion, uh, production of energy, but also to increase the amount of mitochondria in the cells, which you know clearly would be beneficial in increasing the energy and the health of the cells as well. Mm. So it's a very, very important nutrient as well too. Mm. And 
women who have thyroid issues and men who have thyroid issues too, fatigue is a big part of it. When you get them on good levels of coenzyme Q10, there's many times a noticeable difference of uh, in their energy and overall health, which then you know makes them want to exercise more, and then that helps with uh, regulating their weight as well too. Stacy, thank you so much for taking it. That's a huge topic. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> and that's only one yeah, chapter of such a huge, huge topic. <laughs> absolutely, we could do a four to six hour. You know, talk just on the thyroid, and we brought in you know so many different aspects into it as well. So I hope the listeners get a good kind of overall perspective of uh, what they can and should be looking for uh, in general regarding the thyroid and adrenals and the autoimmune system, and hopefully have on a few tidbits in this talk that they can take away and, and apply to their their practice as well. Well, I, I absolutely know they will. There are so many things that I learnt just in that brief talk with you and I look forward to us doing further podcasts in the future. Thanks, Andrew. I do too. Thank you so much again for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Stacey. This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.